Hello and welcome on into Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Today we're talking about the spread of football into the universities of the American South and from those scholastic beginnings, its evolution into what sometimes feels like a load-bearing substructure of Southern culture. I'm happy to be here and of course very happy to have you here as well. Okay, I know you can hear it in my voice and that's fine. It's where I'm from. Every down of football I ever played as a kid was on the red clay and black soil of Georgia and Alabama, and the language of Southern football is my native tongue. But that's how anybody falls in love with a sport, isn't it? Whether it's football in Phoenix City, Alabama, or hockey in Edmonton, baseball in Queens, or the other football in Manchester, your entry point to the culture is local. But as we all know, football didn't start in the South, and not to disappoint the down-homers of the big programs among us, but Southern football's earliest form was pretty starkly different from the current shape of the sport. Today, Southern football is dominated by Georgia, Alabama, LSU, and Clemson. Below them is an enormous strata of teams like Florida State, Auburn, Tennessee, Miami, Arkansas, Virginia Tech, and so on. Most of those names would have been familiar in the early days, but the pecking order that exists today wasn't so clear in the beginning. And speaking of beginnings, that's an interesting question for football in the South. Candidates for the first game of football played below the Mason-Dixon line are everywhere. There's been cases made for the University of Virginia, Washington and Lee, and Virginia Military Institute, among others. But in the 1870s, record-keeping wasn't exactly rigorous. The earliest game we know occurred and have records for was played in Lexington, Kentucky on April 19, 1880, between Transylvania University and Center College. It was played on Stoll Field, a field which some 70 years later would be prowled by no less a coach than Bear Bryant. In 1888, North Carolina and Duke would kick off their rivalry, but not with a basketball game, which wouldn't even be invented until 1891, but on an early football field. Uh, things really start getting cranked up in the 1890s, though. That decade would see the birth of some of the early titans of the Southern game. Teams like Vanderbilt, Auburn, Swanee, Tennessee, and Georgia Tech, as well as countless others that are household names today like Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, and LSU. But most sources on Southern football, or at least SEC football, maybe that's a distinction we're better off working out over time, make a point of highlighting the first meeting of Auburn and Georgia as the major early flashpoint for the game's success in the South. The Tigers and Bulldogs met each other for the first time in Piedmont Park in Atlanta in February of 1892. The game was arranged by George Petrie from Auburn and Charles Hurdy from Georgia, two former teammates who played the game together at Johns Hopkins. A crowd of 2,000 people watched Auburn take the dogs for a 10-0 walk, giving birth to the rivalry called the Deep South's Oldest, which over the following century and change has remained a relatively even contest over the stretch, even if Georgia isn't usually the first team that comes to mind when you think of Auburn and rivalries anymore. But we'll get to that. It's a convoluted story, even if the names of the characters are the same. The institutional integrity and durability of the Big Ten and Pac-12 means that football history in the Midwest and West Coast is, in a lot of ways, pretty straightforward. Those conferences, or their immediate predecessors, have been the purveyors of major college football in their region since more or less the very beginning. That can't be said for the South. I've already talked about how the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association morphed into the Southern Conference, which morphed into the Southeastern Conference and Atlantic Coast Conference. But like the Northeast, the South is also haunted by the ghosts of dead giants and lost futures, 
programs that just aren't what they were anymore, like Sewanee. There are a variety of trends hidden in the history of American football. We've touched on some here and there, and I usually try and call them out when I see them. One is very visible in the early history of Southern football, particularly with Sewanee, and that's football's transition from a sport dominated by elite private schools to one dominated by large state schools. Sewanee, more formerly known as the University of the South, is a small private school in the hills along the border of Georgia and Tennessee on the Tennessee side. Along with Vanderbilt, they were one of the early private school titans of football in the South. In 1899, Suwannee went 12-0, outscored their opponents 322-10, and this included a road stretch where, and I, what I'm about to say is not a mistake, where they played five games in six days, defeating Texas, Texas A&M, LSU, Tulane, and Ole Miss. Grantland Rice, the great sports writer, called them, quote, the most durable football team I ever saw. But over time, Suwannee faded. As time progressed, it got harder and harder for smaller, private institutions to compete with larger public state universities. And this difficulty would have far-reaching consequences for football all across the country. We'll cover the de-emphasis of football at some of these schools later, though. For now, they're as good, or better, than anyone else. A discussion of Southern football also wouldn't be complete without an introduction to HBCUs, that is, colleges and universities, private or public, that began mostly during Jim Crow to cater to the black population otherwise disallowed at larger, better-funded white schools. Fortunately for the narrative, football caught on at HBCUs around the same time it did among their white neighbors. With the first official game between HBCUs taking place in December of 1892, a little over a month after the first meeting between Auburn and Alabama. That first game was played between Biddle College, now called Johnson C. Smith University, and Livingstone College in North Carolina. In 1892, most higher education institutions that served black people were private schools like these, though state funding was on the way with the inclusion of black colleges in the land-grant system in 1890. In the coming decade, HBCUs will undergo the same shift that occurred at predominantly white institutions, as the money and size of public schools begins to change the landscape of what's possible for most private schools. I think I'll do an, an overview of HBCU football soon. There will be opportunities to touch on them here and there, especially between 1940 and 1970, but a good sketch of how they work and how they fit into the larger football picture might be helpful to have in our heads as we go along. How football, particularly college football, came to be so central to Southern culture is a bit of a minefield. In my opinion, perhaps too much is reduced to lost cause thinking and other associations with the Civil War, and it's common when talking about anything to do with the South, even when it's us doing the talking. I don't doubt that the alchemy of Southern football includes a healthy dash of historically motivated delusion, not at all. I'm from here. I've been in these streets, stadiums, hills, and hollers. There's nowhere in the sport I know better, in fact. But because I know it well, I don't think it's nearly sufficient to simply wave our hands vaguely in the direction of Gone with the Wind when we're talking about something so deeply felt by such an enormous cross-section of such an enormous part of such an enormous country. It's simply too complex for that, especially today. But another time, maybe. For now, we're going to board a train bound for Texas and the states in its orbit. On the way, we'll no doubt pick up a collection of supplemental and bonus episodes as those tend to come out while I'm researching. For now, thanks for listening. 
If you're feeling kind, leave a rating or review. If you're feeling unkind, don't do that. But you can reach out to me and hit me up on Twitter at Dogs and Autumn, one word, or email me at dogsandautumn at gmail.com. Till next time, take care.